Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Why do we say that? I mean, I, I realize it is, it's Easter. We, we say it on Easter. Like, I think about it on the weekend leading up every morning. I'm like, I'm gonna count and see how many times I hear that and people saying to me. And it's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that at all. But why? Why do we say that? It's Easter. I get it. But why here, gathered nearly 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, are we celebrating that a self-taught Jewish rabbi from Nazareth is alive? When you put it like that, it makes you think a little bit more, doesn't it? Because avoiding death has proven to be the ultimate impossibility for every human being. One, one thing any coroner will tell you is that death, true bodily death, is a finality. It's not something that people bounce back from. So why do we celebrate today that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth has done the impossible and risen victoriously from the dead, never to die again? There's really only th about three options in my mind. Option one, we're all crazy. That's one option. Option two is we've all just been deceived and believed a lie. But there's a third option, and that is that Jesus is truly the Christ, God in human form who is able to do the impossible. And he has indeed risen from the dead, never to die again. My goal today is to help us see why this third option is truly the most convincing, the most satisfactory answer for why we declare today and every day that Christ indeed has risen. So I would invite you, if you've not already, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're gonna look at verses one through 11 today. And we're actually gonna go through this entire chapter over the next um, three following weeks. So we're gonna spend four weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, this being the first week there. So as you turn there, I invite you to read along with me or to follow along on the screen. Paul writes, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Thanks be to God for his word. Will you pray with me? 
Lord, as we gaze into your word today, Lord, we ask that the meditations of our heart, the words of my mouth, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, would you plant this truth deeper than ever into our hearts and minds, that it may take root, that we may steadfastly hold to it, cling to it with all that we are, knowing that you, Christ, are always and forevermore clinging to us. Amen. So in these verses we just read, Paul provides for us what I believe are three undeniable places that we can look and find a consistent witness to the reality that Jesus Christ was truly dead, but is now alive forevermore. The title of this sermon is The Reality of the Resurrection. And we are going to look first, not at verses one and two, but actually we're going to begin our outline today in verses three and four and return to verses one and two at the beginning. I think you'll see why we do that as we get there. But in verse three, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, many scholars believe that Paul here, his phrasing suggests of of this delivering and receiving suggests that Paul is actually here quoting a very early Christian creed. Um, Which again, if you're not familiar with that term and you maybe you've heard it, you don't know what that is. A creed is simply a short systematic group of of statements of belief that can be easily memorized and then passed on. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians between AD 55 and 57. Um, And he indicates here that this creed, or at least what he is saying, was something he preached in Corinth when he was there, which would have been around AD 51. Um, Now, if you're not uh, familiar with this, this creed would then predate all of the gospel accounts that we have in scripture, all four of them. And it would have been within 20 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why does that matter? Because there was plenty of time and opportunity for people to refute it. And yet no one has been able to successfully do so. However, many scholars also don't just date it within 20 years, but even earlier. Many scholars believe this creed was actually given to Paul either while he was in Damascus with Ananias or at his first trip to Jerusalem to meet with the church leaders and the apostles after his conversion. If that is true, this creed that we find here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, could be within two to eight years in its origin from the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is most likely the earliest testament that we have here today of the risen reigning Lord. And this would place that date so early, again, it is undeniable. But a key component of this creed is that the statements it makes each time it is said to be in accordance with the scriptures. Now, this begs a couple of questions. Number one, what is in accordance with the scriptures? What is the content? But then secondly, where do we find this in the scriptures? The first point of our outline today is scripture's witness. 
And we're going to look at both of these. The answer to that first question, what is in accordance with the scriptures, is this. Simply first, that Christ died. Secondly, that his death was for our sins. Third, that he was buried. And fourth, that he was raised on the third day. That's the what that's in accordance with the scriptures. But then what scriptures? Where do we find this? And really the answer to that question is the Old Testament. But even though I try to like to preach the entirety of the Bible each time I'm up here, um, we don't have time to read the whole Old Testament today. So rest assured, we're gonna get out in plenty of time for lunch. But I do want to point us to a few key Old Testament scriptures as we examine these four things that this creed says are in accordance with the scriptures. Um, Scripture affirms that Jesus died. And scripture affirms that Jesus, first of all, died a violent death. The death of Jesus and many of the details surrounding it was foretold hundreds and in some case thousands of years before they took place. When scripture describes this death, it's not one of tranquility, of passing in the night on one's bed. It's one of violence and brutality. The first place we see the death of Jesus foretold is actually in the very first book of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter three, verse 15, where the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Jesus, the offspring of the woman, would bruise the head of the serpent. It's ironic that the place where Jesus died, where we could say the heel of our Lord was struck by that serpent, seeming to be a venomous death that would bring him to an end. That heel where he was crucified was called the place of the skull. It was the skull of the greatest enemy of all time that was crushed there by the death of Jesus. But it was a violent death. Another place, though, that we look we see that in the Old Testament is Isaiah 53. Um, and really this walks through the entirety of the creed and will point to evidence of all three. But we're gonna begin in verses three through five, which says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53, 11, just a few verses down, goes on to say that this suffering servant that Isaiah describes, who we believe to be Jesus the Christ, poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. It's a clear reference to Jesus being crucified as if he were a common criminal between the two that Luke's gospel points us to and all the gospel narratives affirm. But one final Old Testament text that we should examine today is Psalm chapter 22. In verse one, David writes the same words that both Matthew and Mark in their gospel accounts record Jesus saying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verses six through eight of the same Psalm go on to say, but I am a worm and not a man, 
scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. These not the very words and actions of the soldiers that surrounded beating Jesus and mocking him. Are they not the actions and words of those who passed by? The gospels tell us wagging their heads and telling him to come down from the cross. Are they not the very words and actions of those religious leaders who stood by saying, if he is the Christ, let him come down. Let the Lord save him if he delights in him. But it doesn't end there in, verse, in Psalm 22. Verses 14 through 18 go on even further. Saying, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. These verses vividly foretell events that happen leading up to and during Jesus' death. Such as Roman soldiers surrounding Jesus as they flogged him beat him, spit upon him, mocked him. And then also they divided up his garments and cast lots for them. Things completely out of Jesus' control. Furthermore, though, modern medical experts confirm things like shoulders being dislocated during crucifixion, exhaustion, extreme thirst caused by hypovolemic shock where there is not enough blood in the body. It would cause the tongue to cling to the mouth. And after the beatings of Roman soldiers, it was very common that bone could be seen of the victims. These are almost certainly effects that this beating and crucifixion were endured by Jesus. The facts leave no rational room for theories that Jesus did not actually die. It's simply implausible and foolish. And yet some still cling to that. But though Jesus' death was merciless, (laughs) it was far, far from meaningless. And the second reality, which the scriptures attest to, and this creed adheres to, is not only a violent death, but a voided debt. The entire sacrificial system in the law of Moses was based on the premise that death is the required payment for sin. The New Testament continues this understanding in places like Romans 6, 23a, which says the wages of sin is death. And Hebrews 9, 22b, which says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. For literally centuries, the Israelite people had believed that animal sacrifice was necessary for their sins to be pardoned. They had been taught that by Moses. But in less than six weeks, After Jesus' death on the cross, 
more than 3,000 Jews, we're told, abandoned this cherished belief of the way they could have forgiveness of sins in exchange for the belief that Jesus's death was the all-sufficient final sacrifice for sin. What could explain such a thing? We'll get to that in a moment. Isaiah 53 has already alluded in verses three to five to this, saying that it was the death that brought forgiveness of sin. It was our sin that sent Christ to the cross. But in verses six through eight, it goes on to make it even more clear. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So Paul summarizes these thoughts in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where he says that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died a violent death that voided the debt of sin for all who would believe in him. But then 1 Corinthians 15 verse four states that Jesus was buried. But why? Why? Again, since the crucifixion, there have been some who insist on denying that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And one of the best ways to do this is to deny that he actually died. If Jesus did not die, he cannot come back from the dead. But if we once again look to Isaiah 53, this time in verse nine, we see that the scriptures hundreds of years, somewhere between seven and 800 years before the coming of Christ, wrote these words. Verse nine says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. All four gospel accounts of the New Testament record Jesus's body being taken down from the cross and all four agree that his body was given to Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of elders in Jerusalem. And that man, Joseph of Arimathea, then placed Jesus in his own tomb. Jesus' death was violent. And it was certain. The Romans were experts at torture and they were experts at execution. So much so that according to Matthew's account of these events, the religious leaders of the Jews did not even question whether Jesus was dead or not. They were certain of it. They were just afraid the disciples were gonna come and steal the body and then claim that he had risen from the dead, which is why they tried to make the tomb so secure. But this leads us then to our final testament of the creed and also the Old Testament scriptures, that there is a vacant tomb. Jesus was placed in a borrowed tomb <laughs> because he only needed it for three days. And Isaiah 53 once again points us to this in verses 10 through 12. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. 
and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This speaks in somewhat vague terms, but it speaks of resurrection. Nonetheless, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall make intercession for the transgressors, which the New Testament tells us that Jesus does alive at the right hand of the Father to this day. These verses clearly affirm the substitutionary death of Jesus as being vindicated by his resurrection. When Peter preached the first sermon on the resurrection at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, he pointed to King David's tomb, which was there in Jerusalem, stating that it was there with them to that day. In other words, saying David's remains are there. They're corrupting. You can go up in the tomb and find them there. They've been there since his death. But then Peter goes on and he exegetes Psalm 16, verses nine through 11, which says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Peter unawaveringly then applies these verses to the resurrection of Jesus. He says, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption, Psalm 16 says. Says, David's corrupting right now as we speak. Go look, but go look at the tomb of Jesus. Six weeks ago, it was full, it's now empty. Go and see for yourself. And yet since the beginning, some have denied that the empty tomb alone is sufficient evidence that Christ actually rose from the dead. And furthermore, it has been more recently questioned by many skeptics and even some, I think, misguided Christian leaders that for the Bible tells me so is not adequate cause to trust the incredible claims that the Bible makes, including the resurrection of Jesus. And this brings us to the final part of the creed and the second point of today's outline, the eyewitnesses. Verses five through 10, Paul and the early Christians knew that there would be a lot of people who would scoff at the idea that anyone could rise bodily from the dead. It was against Greco-Roman thought about the afterlife, where they believed the body and the soul were eternally separated at death. And in fact, it's the very thing that Paul is addressing in the entirety of the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. Those in Corinth are second-guessing the reality of the resurrection, which, Paul, which Kyle is actually going to deal with next week in verses 12 through 34. 
But just as Jesus' burial is proof of his death, so also Jesus' appearances after his death are proof of his resurrection. And here Paul begins citing sources. <laughs> he says, one thing that, and before I go there though, one thing you may notice as we read these, as we look at these verses, is that Paul in this list um, does not include the women that all the gospel accounts tell us were the first to see Jesus risen from the dead. And this is something that has led many to accuse Paul of either being inaccurate in his recounts of it or misogynistic and, and oppressive towards women. However, I believe the simplest answer to both of those accusations is this, that Paul and this early creed that is believed to be him reciting here is focusing on Christ's appearances specifically to the apostles. That is what has been handed down. It was the apostolic faith, not the faith of the first that was passed down. Therefore, the purpose was not to be convincing, or I'm sorry, the purpose was to be convincing and memorable, not sequential and exhaustive. Paul's gonna list apostles' names that were well-known by all who knew anything about the Christian faith. And then he mentions a group that we'll look at second of over 500 at once. How could there be anything more convincing than that 500 people at once saw the same risen Jesus? We'll get there in a moment though. First, though, we need to look at what he, who he mentions first, Cephas and the 12. Cephas, if you're not familiar, if that's weird, that's the Aramaic name for Peter. Um, this is the disciple, and Luke chapter 24, verse 34, also records an individual appearance of the risen Christ to Peter. Christ's appearance to the 12 on the end of that is probably a reference of Jesus appearing to the disciples um, that's given in John chapter 20, verses 26 to 29, when Thomas, the doubting one, was actually present this time and was able to see the hands that were pierced and the side that was pierced. And he said, my Lord and my God. Judas, of course, was no longer alive or part of the 12. And so it's very likely, scholars believe, that Matthias was there in these appearances that he was now part of this group and part of the 12. But the 12 was also a very common term used to describe the disciples that followed Jesus and may just be an all-inclusive group, not really numerically um, worried about things. Regardless, this is accounted for in the New Testament. Um, now, honestly, Paul could have stopped right here with his list of, of witnesses. He really could have. Um, if he had there was already as many eyewitnesses just mentioned there to the resurrection of Jesus um, as there are for numerous events in antiquity that are considered unanimously by historians to be absolute historical fact. There's already more evidence just with the appearance to the disciples. But he goes on. But before we go on, let me, I, I wanna share with you a quote. Chuck Colson, also known as Charles Colson, but more um, famously known as Chuck Colson, is the notorious attorney um, and political advisor to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal. And here's what Chuck Colson said about the resurrection and the appearances. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed the truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, 
tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And with that, we should say, amen. There is proof. It's undeniable. This first group alone is enough to refute the skeptics' arguments that the apostles lied and made up the resurrection. But like I said, Paul goes on and he gives what could have been, again, another clincher. He says more than 500 at one time saw the resurrected Jesus. This appearance may align with Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Um, Jesus actually meets his disciples on a mountainside in Galilee. And the 11 are mentioned by Matthew. No crowd is mentioned, but let's be honest. It wouldn't be the first time a crowd gathered to see Jesus on a mountainside. Um, So, we don't know when this was. It really doesn't matter because Paul's gonna cite evidence that, he could, could be, that could be verified right there. Either way, Paul is saying that more than 500 people at once saw Jesus. And he says, again, if you don't believe me, you can go track many of them down and ask them because guess what? Most of them are still alive to this day. And even here though, it's worth noting that Paul is very specific with the details he gives. He's not exaggerating. He's giving historical, factual details when he says that, yes, over 500 saw him, most of whom are alive, but some have fallen asleep. That's Paul's favorite term uh, for referring to saints who have died. For Paul to have known this, he had to have had some level of proximity and familiarity with these 500 people. Think about it. Why else would he say, I know that more than 500 people saw him at one time, and testify that he rose from the dead. And guess what? They're willing to be interviewed about it. Go ask them. He would have known also that they would affirm they still believed that Jesus was alive from the dead. Now, skeptics have often accused early Christians of a couple of things. One of those is what they call groupthink, where essentially a few people misremember an event As they talk about it, they misremember the details of it, and then they repeat this faulty claim so much that they convince even themselves and those who they tell that it actually happened. That's one accusation. But this is simply impossible with 500 people at the same time. It's impossible. As Chuck Colson pointed out, someone would have called bull. Somebody would have called it out. Somebody would have cracked. Somebody would say, this is a lie. I'm not dying for this. I'm not being tortured for this. I'm not being persecuted for this. I'm not being cast out of the synagogue for this. I'm not being estranged from my family for this. But 500 plus were willing to verify it. Another popular argument of skeptics is that the early Christians were hallucinating in their extreme grief following the death of the one who they believed to be the Messiah. They thought they saw him alive again. (laughs) But this is grasping at straws. Psychologists will tell you that it is impossible for two people, let alone 500, to see the exact same hallucination at the same time. It's impossible. Hallucinations don't work that way. Your minds don't work that way. But wait, there's more. Paul then cites James and all the apostles. This is James, not the brother of John, the disciple of Jesus. This is James the son of Joseph and Mary, the brother of Jesus. 
What is remarkable about this James is that we know from Mark 3, 31 to 35 and John 7, 2 to 4, that prior to Jesus's death, his own brothers, including James, did not believe that he was the Messiah. They did not believe that he was a Christ. Yet the book of Acts tells us that this same James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Paul attests to it in his letters. He wrote the book, the epistle of James, which in the very first verse acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord and James is his servant. And Josephus, the Jewish historian in in his antiquities, writes that this same James was also stoned for his faith in AD 62. Stoned to death. What could cause the skeptic brother of Jesus to come to believe that Jesus was the Christ? Become the church leader in the, in the hub city where this faith began and then die for that faith? What could account for that except that he saw his brother his Lord, alive again after his death. James had seen the crucified Jesus resurrected. Along with James here, Paul mentions that Jesus also appeared to all the apostles, um, which may have included some or all of the 72 that Luke 10 says Jesus sent out. It may also be just another group, but it's certainly more than the 11 apostles that were known as the followers of Jesus that followed him before his crucifixion. If that were not so, James would not be included with all of the apostles. For James did not believe until after the resurrection himself. But there's one other person who the risen Jesus appeared to. Paul himself, formerly known as Saul, the Pharisee and great persecutor of the church. Acts 9 records the appearance of the risen Christ to Saul on the road to Damascus. And in a moment, the greatest threat and persecutor to the church became one of its greatest builders, one of its greatest missionaries, one of its greatest church planters. Paul says that last of all, because I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, Christ appeared to me. Paul then refers to himself using a very cryptic Greek term that we're not gonna get into the details of, but we could paraphrase it as meaning a hopeless cause, a hopeless cause, untimely born, a hopeless cause. Yet the grace of Christ is so great that it can redeem even those who seem beyond rescue, even one who persecuted and murdered Christ's own followers. Paul knew firsthand that Jesus is the God of hopeless causes, that no one, no one, is too far gone for his grace to reach and redeem. And Paul says that such grace was not wasted on him, but spurred him on to work tirelessly for Christ who shined light into his dark and dead soul. Theologian and author Michael Green wrote in his book, The Empty Cross of Jesus, that the appearances of Jesus are as well authenticated as anything in antiquity. There can be no rational doubt that they occurred and that the main reason why Christians became sure of the resurrection in the earliest days was just this. They could say with assurance, we have seen the Lord. They knew it was he. 
whether Jesus' closest followers or his greatest opponent, whether his skeptic brother or a crowd larger than the one that we have gathered here today, all of them testify, we have seen the risen Christ. Which brings us to the final point of today's outline. In verse 11, Paul makes the statement, so we preached and so you believed. This is not the first time that the Corinthian believers had heard these things that Paul was saying. They were his original message to them when he visited them, but this is not the first time for them to hear it. And I would imagine for many of us, it's not the first time that we've heard it either. So here at the end, I wanna take us back to the beginning, back to verses one and two, where Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Church today, I would remind you of the gospel that we have preached to you and that others have preached to you and which you have received. See, verses one and verse 11 form the bookends of this glorious reminder that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the only gospel that ever has been and that ever will be. People will question it, people will doubt it, but it is sure and it will stand the test of time. You and I have been invited to, so to speak, take the witness stand. Our witness is the third place that we look to see the undeniable truth that Christ indeed has risen. Hebrews chapter 11 is often referred to as the hall of faith. It's an inspiring recollection of the great acts of faith from many of the, the figures of the Old Testament, those who had gone before. The author ends that chapter with this hopeful statement. He says, God though has provided something better for us. Those that went before did not see Jesus come to earth or Jesus die or Jesus resurrected, but they had hope, they had faith. God has provided something better for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two, the writer goes on to say, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As we have just seen in 1 Corinthians 15, three through 11, we too are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, both from scripture, those who saw the risen Christ with their own eyes, and all those who have believed through the centuries up to this day. To our persecuted believers, brothers and sisters in the world today, around the globe, we are surrounded also by such a great cloud of witnesses. So let us, like the Corinthians, be reminded of the gospel. The gospel of the crucified yet resurrected Christ is first that we believed. It is that which we believed. To be a Christian is to believe, not in yourself, 
not in the goodness of humanity or progress that it can make, not even in a Jesus who only died for your sin, but in a Jesus who having died for your sin, triumphed over death because he could not be held by it. To be a Christian is to believe, not to do. For all the good you and I could ever do will never be good enough to meet the standard of a perfectly holy and righteous God. Christianity is not dependent on what we can do, but it is fully dependent on what Jesus has done. We must say with Charles Spurgeon, therefore, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I risk my whole eternity on the resurrection. The gospel, the crucified and resurrected Jesus is that which we believe, Christians. And if you have never placed your faith in the resurrected king, let today be that day. Do not go another day without looking to him in faith. Come, you will find mercy and grace and rest in him. But the gospel of Christ is also not only what we believed, but that in which we stand, Paul says. You've ever been really sick, standing could have seemed like an impossibility because of how weak we are. But you know who standing is truly an impossibility for? Dead people. Dead people don't stand. Those who have been brought to life stand. Like Paul, every one of us is dead and hopeless in our transgressions apart from the intervening grace of God in Jesus Christ to bring us to life spiritually and eternally. In Revelation 5, Revelation 5, verse 6, John says he saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Our Lord was dead, but he is alive. Christ was laid in a tomb, but he stands now in heaven before the throne of God, making intercession for us. And we who hope in him are brought from death to life for all eternity to stand in his grace and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We stand with our feet firmly planted on Jesus, the rock of our salvation. For all other ground is indeed sinking sand and it will crumble on the day of judgment. Which brings us then to Paul's next reminder that the gospel of the crucified and resurrected Christ is that by which we are saved. Paul wrote in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In Acts 4, verse 12, Peter boldly declared, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus became sin that we might become righteous. He became the curse in order to free us from it. He is the only way to the Father, the one mediator between God and man, the great high priest and spotless sacrifice, the Lamb of God, the resurrection, and the life. We must not dare to hope in ourselves, to hope in human progress, or to hope in anything else this world could offer in order to save us. We place our hope fully and firmly in the rock of our salvation, the Savior who is one day coming to make all things new. The gospel of the crucified and resurrected Christ is that which we believe, 
that in which we stand, that by which we are saved, and finally, that to which we must hold fast. In John 17, on the night he was betrayed, handed over, unjustly tried, mercilessly beaten, shamefully crucified, abandoned by his closest friends, Jesus prayed for his followers. And in John 17, 20 through 21, he said, do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You and I are witnesses today, taking our place with those who have gone before and proclaiming along with scripture that Christ has come, died, resurrected, and will come again. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast in the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Jesus promised in John 16, that in this world, we will have trials. We will have tribulation. We will have suffering. We'll have hardships and poverty and disappointment and broken relationships and death of those whom we love. These are waves that crash and storms that pour down on our faith and tempt us to doubt that Christ is able. But Christ also said in that same verse, take heart, I have overcome the world. Death could not hold him. The veil tore before him. He silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring the praise of his glory for he is raised to life again. The witness of scripture and of those who saw the risen Christ are unanimous. The question is not, why would anyone believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the resurrected son of God? The question is this, do you believe it? Do you believe today? Will you believe tomorrow? Church, will we hold fast the confession of our hope, knowing that he who promised is faithful, that Christ died just like he said he would, and that he rose just as he said he would, and that he will come again to claim his own and make all things new just as he said he was. If Jesus has indeed accomplished the impossible by rising from the dead, the only proper response is faith, is obedience, and is worship. Today, on Easter Sunday, 2021, we gather to say that Jesus has risen indeed, that he indeed has done the impossible and that he will continue to do it. Therefore, let us respond properly, believing in the crucified and resurrected Christ, standing in his grace and his salvation, 
holding fast to him until he comes again, come what may in this life. And in doing so, we will be witnesses to the world of the reality of the resurrection. Once again, I would offer, if you have never believed in Christ for the hope of the forgiveness of sin and for the promise of eternal life in his presence when he comes bodily to make us new and all of creation new. Not on harps and clouds with angels' wings in a spiritual, ethereal fantasy, but in a real, tangible resurrection of all the dead to face the judgment seat of the Lord. If you have never believed that Christ is the only way that you can have redemption and forgiveness before the Holy Father, come today. Do not linger. Come while it is called today, the scriptures say. He is waiting. Come to him and you will not be turned away. You will find life everlasting and joy eternal. Let's pray. Father, what a proclamation that Jesus has done and is able to do always the impossible. Lord, no matter what our circumstances are right now, no matter how broken and beaten down we may have walked in here being today, no matter how we try to mask it with bright colors and smiling faces, God, you know the depths of our hearts and souls and you beckon us to come to you and find rest and restoration to find life and resurrection. Father, I pray that if there is even one here today that needs to respond to this, Lord, that your spirit would drive them crazy and drive them to repentance today, that they would come and they can hear how they can have assurance that Christ has died for them and he has conquered death for them to give them the hope of eternal life. Father, for the rest of us, who have believed this, God, give us the strength we need to hold fast to it. Lord, this world, as you know, will reject that truth. It will cause us to doubt the hardships we go through will cause us to doubt that you are good or that you're able, but God, you are both. And the cross and the resurrection prove it. Lord, help us to cling to it and help us to proclaim it until our dying breath that Christ has died and that Christ has risen, and that Christ is coming again. Amen.